there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for Coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Hope you're doing great. Hope you had a wonderful weekend. It finally stopped raining here in the Washington, D.C. metro area. And wow, life is just so much better when the sun is shining. That and a great cup of coffee. And I am set for the day. Before we get to my next guest, who is someone I actually worked with in my last career, I want to make sure you're aware of the Java Junkies Journal. That's the weekly newsletter we send out to give you a heads up on all of the five episodes we're dropping that week. It goes out first thing Monday morning and tells you who you'll be able to listen to each day that week. You can sign up on the Time for Coffee homepage. So head on over to time, the number four coffee.org and sign up. Now, please grab your mug and take a chug of a seasonably warm mug of your favorite caffeinated beverage because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my next guest is Chris Walker, who is the Social Innovations Director at Mercy Corps, a global humanitarian and development organization working in over 40 countries around the world. In this job, Chris manages the Innovation Investment Alliance, a partnership between the Skoll Foundation and USAID that finances the scale-up of social enterprises. He also advises Mercy Corps' Social Venture Fund, which invests in and accelerates impact-oriented for-profit businesses. We see huge amounts of interest among business school students, policy students, and undergraduates in getting into this area because it's a nice mixture of business skills and social impact. Uh, So the idea is that uh, by participating in this, you can deliver impact on a sustainable basis over time and hopefully make some money while doing it. Uh, so it is an exciting area. It's a, it's a relatively new area, something that's emerged over the last decade or two and is still growing. So I, whenever I talk to students and others who are interested in getting into this sector, it can be a bit frustrating at times for those on the outside looking in because there aren't formalized recruitment processes. The sector itself's not very well organized or structured for those who want to get into it. So thrilled to be able to talk to you today about this and to provide some advice for those seeking a way in. To your question about what what I do every day in this area, I actually work on two different funds here at Mercy Corps. One fund provides grants to not-for-profit social enterprises to help them scale up their impact. So we're providing multi-million dollar grants to social enterprises around the world, mostly in the developing world, uh, to reach millions of people at a time. The other part of my job is to advise Mercy Corps' Social Venture Fund, which is also a fund that supports social enterprises but it invests in for-profit businesses that intend to have social impact. So we invest equity into those companies. In essence, we own a piece of those companies. We provide them with capital, and then we provide them with a lot of support after we invest to help them grow as businesses so that they can deliver higher social impact. What is a typical day like for you? I know that you have always been one of the first ones in the (laughs) office. Yes. (laughs) And usually one of the last to leave. Yes, you're right. It is long days. And and I'd say for all of us who are involved in this sector of impact investing and social enterprise, I'd say it is 
the people that I work with in this sector are some of the most passionate, creative, thoughtful people that I know. And everybody is motivated by the work itself. It is so interesting, so intellectually stimulating uh, that we all tend to work fairly long days. That with the travel that's involved with this work does lead to long hours, but those hours fly by. A typical day, there really is none. There is not a typical day doing this work. The most typical aspect of it is quite a lot of engagement externally. So you spend part of your day at your desk responding to the floods of emails and writing, but you spend a huge amount of time on the telephone or out at coffees, meetings, conferences, um, because we're looking for social entrepreneurs who are at the cutting edge of their fields, which means that we need to better understand the sectors that they work in, where that cutting edge lies, and talk to a lot of different entrepreneurs and other people in the sector to find out who's doing the job well who really has the potential to deliver uh, impact at scale, to sustain that impact over time. Um, and that means meeting a lot of people and talking to a lot of people to get that information that you need. So I'd say I spend half my day on phone calls or out at meetings and the other half of my day at my desk, um, reviewing the emails that come in, doing research online, reading through investment memos, providing analysis or commentary on, on that. Uh, the work's incredibly diverse. I heard at one point, uh, it's an organization that incubates an impact investment fund managers. And so they're training folks who come from emerging markets on how to become better impact investors. And they compare that task to running a decathlon, that you have to be very good at more than 10 different disciplines to do the job well. So what excites me and keeps me going every day is my learning curve is not leveling off. It is, it is a constant steep curve. There's a huge amount to learn and to keep learning, to stay abreast of everything that's happening in the sector. But that's exciting. That's fun. And as this sector grows, and it is growing pretty rapidly, all of us joke it used to be pretty easy five, six, seven years ago to keep up on all of the reports that were coming out. It's no longer possible. We all have growing stacks of reports on our desks to read. Um, so in that respect, it's becoming more challenging, but it's also more exciting for those who are seeking careers in, in impact investing or social enterprise. So if, if I were in college today, what would you recommend that I take as coursework um, that I major in to kind of tee me up to be mm -hmm. competitive in this field? That is a tough question to answer because the, the work is so diverse. I would encourage students, number one, to get, if you're interested in the international aspects, to get overseas during the summer, volunteer if you need to, get a fellowship, but get hands-on experience working in the social enterprise. If you're interested in more domestic issues, work for a nonprofit, uh, work for an advocacy organization, but get hands-on experience doing, doing the work with social enterprises. Pick a discipline, a business discipline that you care about and become really good at that one discipline, build up the skill set there, and then apply that in a, in a social enterprise. You need to also focus on something called moral leadership. This is a, a term that Acumen Fund, which was one of the pioneers in impact investing, often uses um, in training its own staff and fellows. Mm -hmm. You do social impact work because you care about an issue, but you really need to understand the dynamics of that issue you need to understand what the people you're trying to help face on a daily basis. You need to understand how to work with them in a way that conveys dignity 
to them. And the world is in bad need of more moral leaders who really understand the importance of delivering social impact, but can lead in a sector where there's not a clear path forward. There are a lot of ambiguities. So try to focus on building your leadership skills. Have you felt just in the course of your career, and we'll get more into what Mm -hmm. you did before you came to Mercy Corps in a moment. Have you felt like, oh, you know, either, boy, I'm so glad I studied that, Uh or I wish I had studied fill in the blank? Both. (laughs) It's, again, such a broad skill set is required. I'm happy I studied history as an undergraduate, which was really fun and fascinating. I wished I'd studied 10 other topics at the same time. I wish I had done more business and economics uh, in particular, in more finance. Um, I find myself doing quite a lot of work in finance these days. And if I had studied more of it as an undergraduate, I think that would have been beneficial. However, I think all of us who are professionals have had the same experience that what we're doing now is not what we anticipated doing at the time that we were college students. The world has changed so much. When I was in college, this sector of social enterprise and impact investing didn't even exist. So I wouldn't have known what to do to prepare for it because the sector wasn't there. But in retrospect, yes, I would have studied more of the, the hard skills that, that are useful in this field. And so those are some pick your business skill that you care about, whether it's marketing or distribution or logistics or advertising. But finance is just a core skill set for everybody who's who's involved in this, at a minimum being literate in financial terms. For those who may not be familiar with what a social enterprise actually mm-hmm. looks like, mm-hmm. could you just pick one maybe that you're helping right now or mm-hmm. one that you've helped in the past and paint the picture of what that organization is doing? Yes. And let me give you two examples, one of a for-profit business that's delivering social impact and the other of a not-for-profit social enterprise that we are supporting here at Mercy Corps. On the for-profit side, the most recent investment that we made with our impact investing fund is in a company called Vega Coffee. Vega Coffee started in Nicaragua um, and recently expanded into Colombia. And our investment has helped with their geographic expansion. They purchase raw coffee beans from small farmers who are farming just a few trees on their plots of land. In the traditional coffee value chain, those farmers will will sell those beans and they may be very high quality, organically grown beans that end up in gourmet coffee in the US. But those farmers get very little of the money for it because there are multiple traders and middlemen in between who take pieces of the profit along the way. What Vega Coffee has done is cut out all of those middlemen so they can pay the farmers that they source from at least double, if not more. So these farmers see a big increase in their income. The other difference is that most coffee beans are exported to the US or Europe or wherever they're going to be consumed, and then they're roasted there and served. So a lot of the value added to coffee beans is done in advanced markets. And the farmers who grow that coffee don't get the benefits of adding value themselves. Vega not only buys the beans from those farmers, but then employs many of them in local roasting facilities. So they do the roasting on site and then they ship them overnight to U.S. markets and sell directly to businesses or consumers. So that generates additional income for farmers. So we see a big social impact in terms of reaching farmers. And at Mercy Corps, we work with quite a lot of farmers in Colombia who are based in post-conflict areas. And so those farmers 
in particular, we want to see with improved livelihoods and improved incomes, and Vega Coffee can deliver that to them. So we've invested cap. We have an equity share in the company, and we're providing them with a lot of support to expand their operations. So that's one form of social enterprise. It's a business doing business like other coffee makers, but with a real focus on delivering impact for the farmers that it sources coffee from. On the not-for-profit social enterprise side, just a, one other example in a completely different sector is an organization called Living Goods. Living Goods works in community health in Africa. So it, it supports frontline health workers and villages in several different African countries who are local villagers who get basic training in medical care and go door to door providing basic diagnoses of malaria or diarrhea or pneumonia. Uh, and then they can sell basic medicines to treat these diseases. And if the, there's a complication or there's something that they can't diagnose, they can make a referral to a health facility. So a lot of governments have set up these community health systems. What Living Goods does is provides additional training to these health promoters and gives them a, a monetary incentive to do their work. Many of these health promoters that are working in government systems either are not paid or are paid very little. Living Goods equips them with basic drugs to sell, and when they are sold to treat a medical issue, the Living Goods health promoter gets a cut of the revenues. So that helps sustain them in their work. What also sustains them in their work is that they're really delivering health services, which gives them respect. It gives them a way to give back to their own community, and it gives them training and a really good skill set. So Living Goods has found a way in which to deliver health impact at scale while providing good incentives for those health workers to keep doing their job and to do it better every day. So what is it that your engagement with them entails? Mm -hmm. So our engagement, number one, was to provide funding to them. And number two is to provide a lot of support to them after that funding has gone in. The funding that we utilize comes from the U.S. government, and that funding comes with a lot of rules and regulations. So we help the organization better understand how to comply with those rules and regulations, which is sounds boring. It's actually extremely helpful to these organizations because they're at a point of growth where they need to attract more money from government donors. And so we're helping them figure out how to do that so that they can they can raise even more money in the future from government donors, which will contribute to them growing bigger as organizations. We also work with them on monitoring and evaluation, which essentially means that we're helping them figure out what data to collect and how to analyze it so they can determine how much of an impact they're actually having. So those are a couple of the things that we do. We've also now begun working with researchers at Duke University to write up the experiences of several of these organizations and what it takes to scale up your impact as a social enterprise. We see a lot of common themes across these social enterprises so that those researchers are helping document them, put them into hopefully very readable reports and disseminate them so that the social enterprise community can better understand how to overcome some constraints to scaling up their impact. So Chris, let's rewind the clock a bit yeah. and go back to, I guess it was 1992, is that right? Or 93 that you graduated. 93. 93 mm -hmm. that you graduated from Williams. You had a major in history. What were you going to do? 
<laughs> so great question. Not only did I major in history, but I think my course load to do that was maybe one fourth of my classes. So I took significant coursework in mathematics and Spanish and environmental studies and a few other topics. So I really had a diverse educational yes, background and I knew coming out that I would need to go to graduate school. But having a liberal arts education is wonderful. I think it's something that many more people should do because it gives you a broad set of skills and knowledge. But I also knew that I needed to become more specialized at some point by going to graduate school, except that I didn't know what I wanted to do for graduate school. All I knew is that I really was interested in public affairs, public policy, social sector work, doing something that made a difference. I, I wasn't really motivated by going to work for an investment bank and making a lot of money. I just wanted to do something that I felt like I was helping solve some problems in the world. And so I started looking for jobs in the government. Um, I didn't know much about the nonprofit sector. I didn't know much about social sector organizations. And as I mentioned, the social enterprise in impact investment sectors didn't really exist at the time. And I remember going to the Career Center, looking around for opportunities in finding exactly one job offering with the US government. And it was at the Department of Energy and it was to do kind of quasi legal policy work. And so I applied for that because it was one way into the, the government public sector that I was so interested in. I also applied for paralegal positions at law firms because I'd been thinking, well, maybe I'll go the legal route. That seems like an obvious choice for people who major in history. But I was really intrigued by the opportunity to work in the government. And luckily that, that offer came through. It was a two-year program. So it was actually a perfect amount of time for me to go work, get some work experience, and think through what I wanted to do in graduate school. I decided that the legal aspects did not interest me as much as the policy aspects. And I'd never heard of policy school until I'd gotten into this job. And so I started to learn from people I'd worked with who'd gone on to policy school what that was all about. And what really excited me about it was it sounded a lot like my liberal arts degree, which is I got to study, I would get to study economics and mathematics and politics and history and environmental issues. So policy school could give me a, another broad set of skills, but allow me to keep doing what I wanted to do, which was stay in the social sector. So you went to Woodrow Wilson. Right. So I went to the Woodrow Wilson School of Princeton University. I was interested in a, two things. One was international work. The second was environmental policy. And there are quite a few good policy schools out there that have a focus on, on international affairs, uh, the Woodrow Wilson School being one of them. So I went in thinking that I would really focus on environmental policy at an international level. But I got exposed to in my first semester to international development and got really captivated by the, the, the intellectual challenge of why are some countries poor, other countries are wealthy? What works to help improve economic growth in poor countries, but also reduce poverty and, and, and get at the underlying causes of some of the social problems that I cared about and environmental problems that I cared about. And so I got taken up by that. And at the same time, I was, for the first time, really getting exposure to economics and, and enjoying that. Uh, so I, I ended up finalizing my two years there with a, with a concentration in international development, backed up by a lot of coursework in economics and mathematics. Was it worth the outlay of 
a lot of money and time to get that degree? Do you feel that you've been tapping into yes. what you've learned? Yes. Yes. I, I would say not everybody feels that way. Of course, you know, you never know how your career is going to evolve. I wish it had been twice as long. There is so much I wanted to learn. It was a two-year program. I took a year off in between, which was an option. Stayed enrolled as a student, but worked overseas for a year. So I spent a summer working in Africa and the rest of the academic year working in Central America. Uh, when I worked in Africa, I had the opportunity to intern at a U.S. embassy. So I could see development policy from a high level. And then in Central America, I lived in a village up in the mountains next to a coffee plantation and worked on land titling for ex-combatants from the Civil War who were just small farmers trying to make a go of it. So I got a really good comparison between doing policy work and doing hands-on development work on the ground, then went back for my second year knowing a lot more and having had that hands-on experience that I could then see how the coursework was really relevant to doing jobs in this area. And when I graduated, I did want to stay for another year or two because it was such a, a fascinating place to be with amazing students and professors. But two years is two years, and I had to move on. So you were... So it was worth it. Um, it. It was definitely worth it to me. And the job that you got after getting your public policy degree was... I was still interested in working in the government because I felt that that was a place where not only could I do really intellectually interesting work, but I could have some form of impact at a, at a greater scale. It's challenging to get a job in the U.S. government because you often need experience already in the government to apply for these jobs, but they do have a program for students coming out of graduate school, the Presidential Management Fellowship Program, which is something that you apply for while you're in graduate school. And what it, what it is, is if you are named, if you are selected as a presidential management fellow, it gives you an opportunity to apply for two-year positions in various government agencies that keep slots open for presidential management fellows. So it's an easier way into government jobs. So I was selected as a fellow and then started applying to different government agencies that had openings designated for those fellows and ended up going to the State Department in part because I'd worked for a U.S. embassy and I was intrigued by the work. I didn't want to go into the Foreign Service because of the lifestyle of moving every few years from one country to the next. But this was a job that was based in Washington, D.C., in the Economic Bureau at the State Department. And it gave me an opportunity to apply my international development and economics coursework to real world problems. So I went to a, uh, the Economic Bureau at State, and uh, there is an office there called the Office of Monetary Affairs, which sounds very, very financial and economic. But it was in the midst of the late 1990s Asian financial crisis. And this office was at the front lines of figuring out how the State Department should be responding. What I found in doing this work is that I, I was enjoying a lot of the, the economics and finance because it seems so central to the problems of poverty reduction. If you work with, poor, with governments in developing countries, the finance minister is often one of the most powerful people because resources are scarce and the finance minister determines how those resources should be allocated, whether the budget for health or education should go up or down uh, in putting in place policies that could really alleviate poverty. And the Treasury Department within the U.S. government is the one that really has quite a lot of knowledge about economic and finance issues. And it also leads the U.S. government's engagement with the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund, which are enormous institutions that have quite a lot of capital to deploy 
to solve problems of poverty. So to me, it felt like that was the real center of thinking about how policies that, uh, that improve international development could be made. So after two years at the State Department, when my fellowship ended, I moved over to Treasury to work in their International Affairs Division, and specifically in the Africa office. And so the Treasury and the international side engages at a policy level with, with finance ministers and central bank governors around the world, as well as with the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund, and is involved in debt negotiations, among many other tasks. So a lot of what I'd been doing at the State Department was incredibly relevant, but it gave me a chance to go, to when I moved to Treasury, to go really deep into the issues that I was interested in. So what did they have you doing? You said at State, you were writing memos mm-hmm. and things like that. Mm-hmm. What was your kind yeah, of day-to-day the job? Bread and at, the bread and butter. <laughs> the bread and butter at Treasury. So when I started, I spent two years working on Africa, and I was a desk officer for various countries, which essentially meant that for a set of African countries, I needed to know what they were doing on their budgets, on monetary policy, what their key economic issues were, so that any time an official from that country met with somebody at the Treasury Department, my superiors at the Treasury, I would write memos for them so that they had the right talking points and background information so that they would know better how to engage on key policy issues. That was a piece of the work. I'd say the, the bigger part of the work was anytime the World Bank or the International Monetary Fund was making a loan to one of those countries that I covered, the U.S. representative at those institutions needed to take a position as to whether to support it or not, or to push back on certain components of that loan. So the job of the desk officer, in part, is to help inform that decision-making process, to provide input into what the U.S. position should be. How did you make the decision to move over to the Millennial Challenge Corporation? And we probably should also explain what that is. Yeah. I'll start with explaining what it is and then uh, why I made that decision to move. About Partway through my time at the Treasury, there is a new initiative to create something called the Millennium Challenge Corporation, which is a a new government agency that provides foreign assistance. And the thinking was really based on um, the latest research from development economists about how we as a government can provide foreign aid more effectively to, to really deliver an impact on reducing poverty. And then an effort was made to create a new agency that would have the latitude to spend money in a way that could be very effective. And so the Treasury was one of several government agencies involved in designing what that new agency would look like. So I had the opportunity to work in the office at the Treasury that was involved in the design process. And we were specifically involved in one piece of the process around how do you select which countries should qualify for foreign aid provided by the Millennium Challenge Corporation? Because it only provides aid to governments that are relatively well functioning. What criteria do you use for that? And that really got into the core skill set at Treasury, which is looking at quantitative data around various um, uh, around how countries perform from a policy standpoint. And I got interested in that. The Millennium Challenge, I moved on within Treasury, took another role there, but the Millennium Challenge Corporation was passed into law, set up, and then they're out, they started hiring up. And so about a maybe a year into its life, I decided to make a move over there. My thinking was that I 
I, as I mentioned, was really interested in innovative approaches to international development, starting with these debt for nature swaps I was involved with. And while I really liked the intellectual stimulation of policy work, when you do this policy work, you can have a great impact, but personally, you're fairly far removed from the impact that's happening on the ground. And it's hard to see a direct line between your own efforts and where there's positive impact happening. And I wanted to be closer to that impact. And I wanted to find more innovative ways to tackle poverty. What do you think, just as we kind of look at, I guess at that point, it was almost how many years? 2003. You're about 13 years out from your undergraduate Mm -hmm. there. What did you find were the qualities that kind of teed someone up for success in government jobs? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so a couple of things, especially in these policy roles on the international front. One is you have to be very curious because you, you're you going to be moving around from job to job in country to country, and you have to learn very quickly about the new role or function and the new content. And that means a huge amount of reading and talking to people and just soaking up information like a sponge. And that's a lot easier to do when you're really curious. You have to be a really good writer in these roles because that is the core skill set that you use on a daily basis. You're reading a huge amount of information, taking in a lot of information, distilling it down to the key points, but then you have to be able to communicate them in writing really well. And you will not last long in these jobs if you don't write well or if you don't learn to write very concisely. I'm constantly impressed with the skill with which State Department Foreign Service officers and economists at the Treasury can take real technical information and put it into a very readable form. Writing is underestimated, I think, but when you get into these jobs, that is what you do. And you need to have that skill set no matter how you develop it. And I'm guessing you have to write quickly. And you have to write very quickly. Often you'll be working away at something and you'll get an email, we need a memo in two hours and you have to drop everything. I wrote 20 pages of congressional testimony in six hours. Once. Oh my God, Chris. Um, double space. So you <laughs> That's insane. It down. But you often get these very last minute tasks. You have to drop everything you were doing and you don't have a lot of time to sit back and read and think. You just have to do and start writing and you have to write very coherently. You don't have a lot of time to do draft after draft. So yes, yeah, so writing is a big piece of it. And then being able to communicate well in meetings. Uh, Nobody has the time or the patience to hear somebody go on for 15 minutes about something and not get to the point. You have to learn to brief. And it's it's a good verb because you have to brief briefly. You have to get across the key points in a couple of minutes. And then be prepared to answer any question that might come your way. So you almost have to put yourself into the shoes of the person you're talking to and think, if I were them, what would be the issues on my mind? And then be prepared to answer those questions. And that you get that through experience over time. I was just going to say, so what would you, in terms of giving that advice to someone who thinks that they, they may be in that job right now, uh-huh. but are not doing it as well as they would like, how did you really hone that skill? What is it that you figured out was the key to writing a really effective briefing note or or briefing someone? Mm -hmm. So a few things. One on terms of the oral presentations is sitting and listening 
and finding who does this really well and then sitting in a meeting and watching them and listening to them do it, just absorbing how they do it and analyzing how they do it. So it's really helpful to take a view of, I need to learn and I'm gonna sit back and watch and listen and observe and find the people who are really good at it and then try to imitate them. Uh, on the writing part, it's reading other people's memos to see how they do it. And I asked my colleagues, like, you know, these talking points, the, how, how do you tackle them? How do you distill them down? And then whenever I would get feedback on memos I would write, I would look very closely at that feedback. And that's actually, if you work for a good supervisor, you'll get feedback, but it's not always the case. If you're not getting it, you need to seek it out. You need to ask for it. I wish I had done more of that, in fact, of asking for feedback. It's not an easy thing to do because you're opening yourself up to criticism and feeling that you're not adequate, but it's really the only way to improve. Speaking of opening yourself up for, mm -hmm. for that kind of feedback, constructive feedback, mm -hmm. is there a story that you could share with us, Chris, that could be of comfort to others yes. who don't have the same unbelievable resume that that you do, didn't, aren't at mm -hmm. Ivy League schools, something that really made you stop and take a deep breath, but that forced you to dig deep and move yes. forward? Absolutely. Let me take you another step forward in my career journey, because that's where it happens. After two years at the Millennium Challenge Corporation, I'd spent nine years at that time in the U.S. government and decided that it was time for me to move to the next stage of my career and to move from the government into something where I could be more hands-on and closer to the impact on the ground. But I was also very interested in innovative approaches. And I had the opportunity to apply for a one-year fellowship with an impact investment firm, a, a not-for-profit, socially-oriented venture capital fund called Acumen Fund in New York City. By the way, I mean, I was leaving behind a safe, secure, prestigious government job where I was on a steady career path of promotion, where I could move up within the government, and really, for me, taking a big risk of leaving all that behind to learn about a new field, still within the scope of international development, but one that I didn't, I didn't know where it would lead me to, but I knew that that one year would give me an amazing experience and hopefully would open up new opportunities. And it was a competitive fellowship, so I felt privileged to have that opportunity. And I thought, wow, the world's gonna open up to me when this one year ends. Well, it didn't. Um, it was such a new sector of impact investing in social enterprise. I'd been overseas for the full year. I waited to look for jobs until I got back to the US. Fellowship ended one week after Lehman Brothers went bankrupt and the start of the financial crisis in the US in the fall of 2008. And money dried up, especially in the social sector. Nobody was hiring. So I came back to the US with, like, ready to take on the world in this new area. And having just finished this prestigious fellowship and thinking this will be no problem, I'll jump right into something incredible. And I was unemployed for eight months. I had no home because I had put all my stuff in storage, given up my rental apartment. I moved back home to St. Louis, slept in my sister's old room with my parents for months. It was wonderful to spend more quality time, but it was also a challenge. You know, I'd been on this path of 
steady career advancement. And then I was right back to where I was in some senses in high school. And it took a lot of effort, especially in the midst of a financial crisis, to find my next opportunity. And I wanted to continue on this path of impact investing in social enterprise, but there was no formal way in. It took a lot of networking and talking to people and opening up myself to new opportunities that I would not have considered before. And it's also, I think, easy if you've gone to an Ivy League school or you've had a a coveted job afterwards to think that people will hand you things, that that you are entitled to certain opportunities that's not always the case. And so coming back and being unemployed and and wondering where will that next job be and will it be an advancement or not, or am I taking a big step back professionally? I was so excited when I got my next job and so appreciative of the opportunity to, to really contribute. I had a totally different mindset going in and it was probably the best thing that had happened to me is having that, that period of, I've really got to fight for something. I've really got to dig down and, 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 and really make an effort to find opportunities that I can benefit from. And I, I, once I got that next job, I was, I'd say I worked harder than anything to, to make a go of it. And I put a lot more of myself into that job because I had an opportunity and I was so appreciative of the opportunity and putting more of my own self into it. I owned the work I did much more than I ever had before and got much more passionate about the work as a result and felt like I could really, as a person, make a difference. So that was, that was a really pivotal point for me. How did you keep yourself from getting too depressed? Yeah, during that period, yeah. And it was during the winter. It was cold and dark and gray. And I woke up every morning at the same time as if I were going to work. Shower, get dressed, have breakfast, and then 8.30 in the morning, I was at my computer working. My work was my job search, but I treated it like a job with discipline Monday through Friday, that's what I would do. And I'd work for most of the day at that, trying to set up phone calls, Uh, informational interviews, doing research online, applying for positions I'd seen, reaching out to contacts, making frequent trips to the East Coast, to Washington, to New York, to see people that I knew, sleeping on sofas, to and going to to meetings to see what was out there job-wise. So that kind of discipline really helped. Um, it, It still wasn't easy, because it's, there's so much uncertainty. You just don't know from day to day, am I ever gonna find anything? And so the vast majority of the days you're looking online for jobs and not seeing anything at all that looks relevant. And every now and then something would pop up and then I'd apply for it. And a lot of those didn't come through, but I think in most job searches you reach a point where for whatever reason, a bunch of opportunities come along all at once and you get some traction with them and then nothing may happen. And then you go back into the trough again, but then you go back up that wave when the next surge of, of openings comes along. And I reached a point after seven or eight months where I actually had a few opportunities that that seemed promising and I was pursuing all of them, not knowing which would come through. One came through. It was in Geneva, Switzerland, which was not even on my radar screen to move to. I was looking for jobs in Washington and New York. But it was actually helpful to know that, hey, in the midst of a crisis, any job opening is a valuable one. 
and I could get something out of it. Chris, before we wrap this up, I would love for you to share a few words of wisdom that you have gained from the last uh, number of years that you've been out in the working world that um, maybe you wish you had known Mm-hmm. when you were in your early 20s or even teenager coming out of college? Yeah, so number one, it's all about relationships with people. Whatever you want to do professionally, I've found that all of the best opportunities have come along in part through people I know and people who've been helpful to me. You still need to look for job announcements online and you know re- read for those openings and prepare your resume, but then you've got to tap into your network and find out who knows whom at the organization that you're applying to, who can give you advice, who can put your resume in front of the hiring manager. And those sorts of things, tapping into the knowledge that's in the network of relationships that you have is so effective. And it's something I have to keep reminding myself of as well. It's that's where real knowledge resides. So it's worth the time investing and building real relationships. And I would add that it's authentic, real relationships, not superficial ones where you want to use somebody for their connections. People see right through that. You need to have some genuine connection with people. When you do, they will help you out and you'll want to help them out as well. Networking often gets a a bad name because it can be seen as very transactional. And that's something I was not a networker. I still don't feel like I'm a natural one, but what's really helped me in thinking about networking and building up a network of contacts and relationships is is to not think about it as transactional at all. I, I genuinely enjoy meeting people who are thrilled with the work that they do and learning about it and connecting with them that way. Um, and just, just being curious about what they're up to and getting to know them as people. And then that in and of itself makes it makes it worthwhile. There never needs to be any, you know, job benefit coming out of it if you really just enjoy talking to people about what they're doing. And you're going to learn a huge amount from those relationships that will help you in whatever you're doing job-wise. You'll get new perspectives. You'll hear about new opportunities. It's really exciting. And then at some point in time, if you're ready to switch jobs or pursue a new opportunity, those people can be very helpful to you. But that request of help for a job search comes after having built a really strong relationship just based on mutual interest and respect. Um, so I, I do think spending more time on networking, but, but in the, the sense of building true real relationships with people is really beneficial. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.